You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network brought to you by Federal Premium Ammunition and their new Centerfire Rifle Ammunition Terminal Ascent. Now, the Terminal Ascent has a slipstream polymer tip that helps flatten trajectories and initiates low-velocity expansion at longer ranges. The Terminal Ascent gives you match-grade long-range accuracy in a bonded hunting bullet and it comes in a variety of cartridges including the 6.5 creedmoor the 280 ackley improved the 28 nosler the 7 millimeter remington mag 30-06 and the 300 win mag if you want to find more information about the terminal ascent visit federalpremium.com and while you're there check out it's federal season the official podcast of federal ammunition Willie Schmidt, host of Peer Hunting, is on the show. We discuss the start of peer hunting, elk hunting mishaps, steps for hunting a new elk area, and more. I hope you enjoy the show. You are listening to Tales from the Field, presented by Outdoor Edge. Stories, tips, tactics, and in-depth conversations coming to you from industry leaders. Let's get into the show. I am your host, Zach Harold, and today we have Willie Schmidt with Pure Hunting on the podcast. How's it going today, Willie? Great. How are you, Zach? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. I, I really appreciate yeah. you taking time out to hop on the podcast. Well, appreciate the opportunity. Yeah. So, so Willie, kind of let the audience know a little bit about yourself and how you kind of got into the outdoor industry, and and then maybe we can jump into kind of the knives that you prefer and and the ones that typically find themselves in your backpack on your hunts. That sounds perfect. Um, I got involved in the outdoors and being a passionate hunter, fisherman, just outdoorsman in general, just like a lot of people following my dad around the woods from a really early age. And uh, then started small game hunting, um, born and raised in Colorado. He was a biologist. I'll back up a little bit. He was a biologist with Colorado State University. So we spent a bunch of time out there. And Colorado, you can't, you couldn't start hunting big game until you were 14 at the time. So obviously started small game as soon as I passed the hunter safety course and migrated into big game and uh, just really took to it. Um, my dad being on paid staff at CSU had some limited vacation, but always made a point to go with a group of buddies for a week elk hunting. 
and they'd alternate every other year, muzzleloader and archery. And unfortunately, I didn't get to go till after I graduated college. Um, but that has become my biggest passion. Um, I, 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 if somebody's asked, somebody has asked me in the past multiple times, if I had to give up all but one type of hunting, what would that be? And it's hands down archery, all cunning. Um, but all in all, I'm a, I'm a hunter at heart. I'll hunt with archery gear, rifle, love waterfowl hunting, um, all for different reasons. Um, but I got into the corporate world, was a banker for a lot of years, had a, a wife and, and two young kids for quite some time. So outdoor passions, like a lot of things, sort of took a back seat. I had limited vacation time, but was always very passionate about the outdoors. And then our bank in 2006 was purchased by another bank. I stuck around for about a year, realized that's not what I wanted to do. I didn't know what I wanted to do, but uh, knew that wasn't it. And I didn't want to have the regret five years later, wishing, wishing I had left and followed whatever was next for me. So I left and, uh, and I got involved in the car wash business. But at the same time, when I was leaving the bank, I had to inform all of my customers I was leaving, one of whom was Orion Multimedia, which at the time was probably the largest outdoor production company. Um, and they asked me if I had any interest in sometimes doing some co-hosting opportunities or guest hosting and i just knew i liked to watch outdoor television so i said sure i couldn't tell them no till i tried it and i did some guest hosting co-hosting for them for about three years and then uh, a couple of guys left from orion and started true side media and that's kind of when pure hunting was was uh born i guess if you will and here we are nine years later <laughs> so getting ready to start filming season 10 this fall yeah. Now, so that's, I hear you kind of chuckle because, um, you know, obviously just like starting any business in all reality, the odds are against you, you know, and, and it's, and from what I understand, after talking to you and, and David Block and, and quite a few other people in the industry, it's, it's not much different when it comes to starting a TV show and putting it on air. It's, it's, you know, if, the, the odds are kind of stacked against you. So did, did you ever expect when you started this whole deal to, to be the, to kind of in a snap of a finger, be season 10? <laughs> no, not at all. Um, and the learning curve was really steep when I did my, <laughs> my with Orion. I, I did, I had nothing to do with dealing with sponsors, the network, um, any of the storytelling, um, you know, I basically was a hired gun, went on some of these hunts. Um, I didn't hire the videographers. The videographers turned all their footage into Orion, and they told whatever story they felt by looking at the footage. And six, eight, nine months later, whatever, an episode would come out. And I didn't know a whole lot, but I did know that there was a lot more that could be done. And a lot of that hunting, look, I love to hunt, but it was not my normal um Stick. I mean, I don't call outfitters and fill up my schedule every year um, by going with outfitters. It's a lot of applying for different tags, a lot of over-the-counter drawing what I can draw and trying to do it on my own, mix of public and private. But the point being, that was not the favorite way to hunt. And I felt that so much of hunting is the planning and the prep and what happens afterwards, the camaraderie. It's not just about showing up. Um, 
killing an animal or missing an animal and having the episode end. So when we started this, have it be very cinematic and and tell the whole story. And we shot a great sizzle and went out there and, you know, you, you, I thought, well, I've been on a couple of shows for a couple of years. You know, this might not be um, too awful bad to get started. Well, went to the first trade show and quickly found out how tough, <laughs> how tough it can be. Um, so you, you know, it is tough. The odds are against you. Everybody and their sister wants to try to have an outdoor TV show all for various reasons. And, uh, you know, here we are, like I said, nine months late or nine years later. And, uh, I did have to fund quite a bit of it out of my pocket for the first couple of years, turn the corner in year three, like most businesses, it takes you a while. To, yeah. Whether it's building customers, building a reputation, all of those things. And for those who don't know, you know, for a couple of years, a lot of people said, boy, it must be nice to get paid all that money and go on all these hunts. And I, I said, yeah, if you find somebody who has that, let, let me know how they're doing <laughs> it. Cause that's not how the industry industry works. Uh, you know, we all pay for the privilege um, of having a show on, on the network. Uh, it's a time buy. So you pay for your time slot, you pay for your hunts, you pay for field production, getting guys like you to come out and film. And then you pay for post-production. Now, some people self-film and some people edit their own shows, um, which can lower the cost. And, and I would argue in a lot of cases, not all, quality drops. And uh, and then you have to make up all that money via partnerships and sponsorships. And that's not easy, especially the first couple of years. Most of these partners, and it's gotten more and more competitive in the 10 years I've been doing this, you know, they want to see some longevity. They want to see some consistency and the quality requirement has gone, has gone up dramatically in the last few years. So I feel really fortunate. The, the learning curve was very steep. There's a lot of attrition in this industry. I figured after I'd been in it for a year, if we hit year three, maybe four, we'd have been doing pretty well. And it just keeps rolling. So um, I still pinch myself. I still love it. It has not diminished my passion for the outdoors one bit. Well, good. Don't stop anytime soon because I like going along. So, um, <laughs> well, I like having you. <laughs> well, that's good. And and it was funny. I kind of chuckled when you when you when you mentioned I had to put some out of my pocket, and not for probably the reasons that that maybe you or most listeners are thinking. I chuckled because all as I was thinking was was the time that we were on the hunt and. Samantha picked up Chris's release and you picked up something else of his. And I just like, well, that's probably why you had to spend the money is because Chris was losing everything. <laughs> Between Chris losing stuff and breaking stuff, I'm surprised I haven't gone broke. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness. Oh, the, just a couple of days ago, he and I spent, I don't know, almost an hour on the phone talking about his, el his upcoming elk hunt and all that stuff. But, um, right. yeah, I, I could, I could completely imagine that the learning curve was very steep, especially when you, when you go in as a co-host and, um, I, that it was probably much like other businesses. You kind of don't know what you don't know. And you go in there and you're like, Hey, we're going to take care of this. And I think this is how you do it. And then you quickly find out that there's a lot of, a lot of other ways to do it. <laughs> you know, you're, yeah, you're absolutely right. And you don't, like you said, you don't know what you don't know and you don't even know what questions to ask just because you weren't right. involved. With. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. That's, that's, that's one thing that, uh, about anything, and this is a completely big tangent, but 
you know, it's funny when you, when you're wondering something or want to find something out about a camera or whatever else, and, or even bows or knives or whatever, but you, you, you know, Google knows, but you don't know how to ask the question to get Google to know what you need to know. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's like, you don't know what you don't know. It's like, man. (laughs) That's a riot. You're absolutely right. Yeah. So with, uh, you know, with getting sponsorships and everything like that, um, I, I don't know a whole lot about that avenue, um, but I would assume somewhere along those lines, you you and and Dave Block without Edge started started talking, communicating, and then your guys's partnership kind of came to fruition. Uh, how long have you, has Pure Hunting and Outdoor Edge been working together? You're so you're mostly right, David, and there's other manufacturers out there who use third parties to help them with their media buys and whatnot. And so David used the, and maybe still does uses a company um, out of Eagle, Colorado um, that does a lot of his buying. And I don't know if they do print and, 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 or other avenues, but they do the TV buying. So um, it's urge media. And so I actually had, like a lot of startup shows and some of them use them for their whole career. Uh, but you work with them, they bring some of the sponsors on board. So you have sort of a relationship with the manufacturer, but it's through this intermediary urge media and there's others, but this was my experience. So, um, they kind of came on board and you work with urge media on the deliverables, you know, the integration in the show, um, billboard, mini skit commercial, any, and all of that. And it's a package deal with urge that they partner show with other manufacturers. It wasn't all with David um, and outdoor edge, but that's how it started. Um, as I went on, this could be a whole nother topic. So we won't go there, but I, the network doesn't like using a lot of these intermediaries because it can sort of distract from the show with all the mini skits and integration there could be 15 second mini skits which basically are mini infomercials within the show and by the time you start having a couple of 15 second mini skits a 45 skit in there whatnot you're taking what you only have 22 minutes and 15 seconds of content you supply to the network right you start taking 45 seconds here 15 seconds there you have less and honestly the viewer sort of tunes out during a lot of those things so I use that as an opportunity as the network was trying to limit that. I was as well because my background as a banker was all about building relationships. Um, And I fortunately got to know David at the time. And for most of my life, I lived in Colorado. Outdoor Edge is based in Colorado. So it was kind of neat for me to be able to go and and meet with him on occasion, but everything was done through Verge Media. Um, So I don't remember if it was like season four of Pure Hunting, maybe season three. I stopped using Urge Media. And like a lot of relationships, there's a non-solicitation, non-compete within the contract. So I couldn't do anything with any of the partners I had through Urge Media for a period of period of time. I fortunately had a shorter period than what they're building into their contracts now. And so I just reached out to David and said, David, I'm going to keep using your stuff. I, I love it. Um, I may be able to give you some branding, but I can't approach you and I can't do a 
you know, a business deal with you for this period of time until it expires. Um, I like the product that much and I like David that much. So when that expired, I reached back out to David and, and basically had to say, you know, I'd like to do something. I presume you don't do everything through urge. You do have direct relationships. And fortunately he did. And so we rekindled that. Um, and now we're directly together and we have now for, I believe, four years. Gotcha. Gotcha. That's, uh, that you're, you're not kidding. That's, that's about a roundabout way, um, <laughs> to get around that bush. <laughs> but, um, right. but, uh, I, I, you know, as I'm getting more and more into business and all that kind of stuff, I could definitely see the whole side of obviously not breaching the contract and things like that. So, um, but that, in itself says a lot about Outdoor Edge's knives and how how well they work. I mean, here you are uh, with the the power of exposure on national television and you're like, yeah, these things are great. I'm going to keep using them. Um, I mean, you could almost just like cut snap in the podcast right there. Like <laughs> it's – yeah, right. there. That's it. I mean, because that's been my experience with Outdoor Edge the, with the knives as well. Um, I, I just, uh, you know, because I've used uh, I've used Havilon, um and Outdoor Edge, and there was one a while ago. Kershaw, Kershaw was the company. Yeah. That was all the way back in high school. I mean, um, I don't know, twelve years ago or whatever. But um, I lost them somewhere. That's a completely different story, but I don't know where they went. Anyways, I, I really did like that knife set, um, you know, being able to change from the saw blade to the, like the kind of boning knife to like the gut hook sound. I really liked it. I was like, man, this is a great idea. And as my knife sharpening skills got even worse, I started thinking to myself, I had got to figure out what I can do about this. Cause I have zero desire to learn how to sharpen a knife. So um, that's when, you know, uh, outdoor edge and, and Havilon came into play, but Havilon, the blade always gets stuck on when I'm gutting something, it comes off and it drives me nuts. So I subscribed to Eastman's and that's, that's how I got my first outdoor edge. <laughs> yeah. There you go. Yep. And well, I was actually, uh, sorry to interrupt. I was actually introduced to outdoor edge way early on, even before, I mean, I was probably still in high school. My dad bought me one of their knives and it was a, a fixed blade. It may very well have been, um, I don't, it, it, it was a, like I said, a fixed blade, non-retractable, uh, but it had a gut hook on it and I used it for a couple of years. Um, you did have to sharpen it to your point. And I mean, my dad and I, he had a couple buck knives and he had one or two outdoor edges and we'd spend time on the, the stone, you know, back and forth and, and of course, right. you went in the field and you had to take a couple of blades, you know, and a sharpening stone. That just added a lot of bulk and weight. Um, but the cool thing about Outdoor Edge that I learned back then is when it got dull, they have lifetime free sharpening. And so that's when I learned they actually were in Colorado. I just had to ship it to Boulder back then. And then, you know, within a week's time, I get it back and sharper than heck. And I don't even think they charge for it, maybe just the shipping. Right. So, that's and I got crazy. to learn more as I got into the industry. And I'm with you. I mean, I started with a Avalon and Chris and I would buy uh, surgical blades and whatnot, but 70. I mean, and that was dangerous. They'd catch on things and pop off and try and remove the blade. 
you, you about cut your fingers off trying to do it, you know, and had to use a piece of wood or something like that. So when yeah. Outdoor Edge came out with theirs with, with that safety button and with the sheets that the blades come in and everything, man, I was sold from, from the get-go. I just thought that was the greatest thing since last bread. And to take one knife with six blades in the field, that's likely more than you're ever going to need. And your bulk and weight goes way, way down. Yep. And you don't ever have to resharpen it. And if you want to sharpen it, you can. I mean, you can sharpen those replaceable blades. But yeah. as Chris said in the video we did for him, he's like, why am I replacing my blade? Because I can. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I, I found it really interesting when I was with Dave uh, last year uh, in Kansas He's like, yeah, usually when you sharpen a knife, because I mean, the amount that that guy knows about knives is just crazy, right? And he said, mm -hmm. you know, usually when you sharpen a knife, all you really need to do is, and he pulls his thumb up and he says, he says, you feel this little burr right here on the edge of the blade uh, with your fingernail. And I reach up there and I said, well, yeah, I, I feel my thumbnail kind of getting stuck. He said, yeah, you, you take this little sharpener here and you, and you go about three, three to six times. And he's like, as long as it knocks that burr down, it'll be back almost razor sharp. And I was like, huh? So the 40 times that I was stroking back and forth was, was just doing me no good. <laughs> right. Right. Just frustrating you probably. Yeah. I'm like, man, it just really doesn't seem to be getting much sharper. <laughs> That's funny. Oh man. But with, uh, you know, with outdoor edge, uh, I, that was something else I learned last year. I had no idea that they had such a huge variety. You know, I, like I said, when I subscribed to Eastman's and they sent me that one, uh, the folding razor light or whatever it was. Um, uh -huh. I, I just, that's what I knew them for. So when I went in there and we were on the way to Kansas, say, Hey, I need to stop by the office. I walked in there and I was like, Holy hell. <laughs> like, he, I had no clue. And he's like, yeah, we, we got a lot of them. <laughs> I just, uh, it kind of blew me away, honestly. And so with that, I was kind of curious when, you know, let, let's say, when you're going on one of your whitetail hunts as opposed to a backpack style elk hunt, um, does your, does your knife, the, does the knife that you have in your backpack, uh, does it change from hunt to hunt or do you typically carry the same one? You kind of have a favorite that you typically carry. Yeah, it really hasn't changed, um, throughout the years, whether it's elk or whitetail or, or, frankly, hog hunting or whatever, the razor light is pretty much my go-to. And because of the replaceable blades, I used to think it was great having a a saw. And some of those, as you know, those backcountry hunts, you sometimes do need a saw to really get through some things. But you take your time and you can, you know, cut through the tendons and separate leg bones and do whatever. And in New Mexico, shoot, we all had those outdoor edges and we deboned my bowl in uh short order and i don't think we had anything other than the razor light um the only thing that you can't do is like cut the skull cap off or whatever without a saw um but i i figure that's a, a it's not a necessity you know the razor light with about half a dozen replaceable blades is a necessity the rest is just a bonus and i'll have a game processor kit or something in my truck and i've certainly got one at home to give you you know the fillet knife and much bigger knife than the spreader and the cutting board and whatnot. But on most of my hunts, I just have a razor light or two 
in my backpack and in the car, and that satisfies you know ninety percent of what I need to do. Yeah, and and when he came out with uh, with the Razor Max, um, mm-hmm. that was uh, honestly. He even looks at me and he says, "You know, here, uh, you know, before you head off, I, I want to give you this Razor Max and a, and a Razor Light." Uh, and he says, uh, "The Razor Max might not really be up your alley because I know you like to backpack hunt, and it's a lot easier to have a knife that folds." And and I I reached out, and I just grabbed that Razor Max, and the handle just felt so incredible. I was like, "Wow, Dave, that thing feels." He's like, "Yeah, it feels pretty good in the hand," <laughs> and, and I was like, mm-hmm. "That thing feels incredible." And uh, it actually ended up being in my backpack on several hunts. I used it to skin out some deer, and and then when I got home. I use it to cut up a whole bunch of meat for my meat processing. And I don't know if you've spent much time with that one, but I really like that you can use the, what is it? The shorter, like four or five inch blade, but then also put the the longer one on there too. I mean, I was just like, it's like, man, that, that longer one's really handy, especially when I'm cutting up meat at the house. That boning, it's a five inch blade is great. And you had the advantage of getting it a little bit, earlier on than I did. I think I received mine November, December. Chris and I did use them on our waterfowl hunt. And some of those big geese, that five inch boning blade blade really worked great on those uh, big Canada's. Uh, so yeah, I'm with you. I love having a fold up knife, um, but the fixed blade, it's not ridiculously long and you can put both blades in it. You just can't fold it up. And conversely, you can put the five inch blade on the razor light, you just can't fold it up because it's an inch and a half longer. But if you have a little pouch with some extra blades, you can easily attach it and then just take it off before you fold up the knife. So it, you know, the blade is great and just the versatility to have three and a half or the five inch blades is awesome. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, and just, I don't know too, especially because I'm sure and not actually, I don't think it's happened with an outdoor edge, but it has happened on other folding knives, you know, where maybe you're trying to get up to the brisket or whatever else. Now I don't, I usually bone everything out now, so it's not really an issue, but back then, you know, the, the folding mechanism would kind of give out or something like that. And on the razor max, you don't have to worry about that. Cause there's obviously it doesn't fold. And for something like that, that's, that's kind of peace of mind as well. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, like anything, the less that can go wrong with moving parts, the better off. Right. Right. Yep. That's, <laughs> yep. You, you definitely got that right. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. I just, I was just going back thinking all the stuff that I break and Chris breaks. It just kind of made me laugh because usually it turns out to be something that had too many moving parts and, and a lot of them had moving parts for no reason. <laughs> You're absolutely right. Yep. Yep. Calling all elk hunters. Do you want to go on a free archery elk hunt in Colorado? Here is your chance. Outdoor Edge is giving away a free archery elk hunting trip. To enter the drawing, go to OutdoorEdge.com and click on Elk Hunt Giveaway. Again, that is OutdoorEdge.com and click on Elk Hunt Giveaway. Now, let's get back to the show. Well... I guess you can twist my arm. It's been a little bit, but I, I, I'll be happy to talk a few minutes about it. <laughs> oh, man. After a year like last year, I don't know how you – and even, not just New Mexico. I mean, we got into lots of elk in Wyoming too. And and I don't – did you get into some elk in Montana? 
I did. I did. I got I had a great hunt and and uh, almost closed the deal. Unfortunately, uh, I misjudged the yardage and uh, I hit the bull. It was a little bit low, um, so I didn't recover him. But I know he also wasn't dead. Um, gotcha. So yeah, unfortunately, it wasn't the ending that I wanted. But I was in elk for quite a bit, and uh, I, that's my like I said earlier, my biggest passion. I absolutely love it. Right. You know, actually something very similar happened to me, um, a few years back. I, this bull comes, is coming in and I, I put it, you know, right behind that crease. And, and now that I know more about the golden triangle and everything like that, it should have been farther forward, but, um, mm-hmm. I put it a little bit behind the crease and if it would have been in the golden triangle, it probably would have been a heart shot, but because I was a little bit behind that crease and that low, it hit that void and I watched my arrow just disappear through this elk and he runs over and he lays down and I'm kind of just standing there waiting and I look over and his antlers are on the ground and I'm thinking dang I mean usually as you know unless they're really hurting they don't do that and I'm like I'm like hey he's he must be basically expired so I go over there and I'm super quiet because it's just me you know I don't have anyone to hoot and holler with so I start looking and I find my arrow and it looks like it was been squeegeed clean and it smells like fat. And I look uh, over yeah. and that bull is standing up looking at me and he walks off and I go and there's, uh, I don't know, maybe a half dollar size of blood where in his bed. And the following year I found his shed. <laughs> really? So, yeah. So it was just like, I don't know. It was one of those, it was just kind of crazy because it's like, much like your deal, you know, where, where, yeah, it's bow hunting. And, and like we've said before, if, if, uh, if you haven't wounded an animal, you either haven't hunted enough or you're lying. And there's times right. when, when wounding one really sucks and times when it still sucks, but not as bad. And when you know, the animal is still out running around and, and is for lack of better words, is basically okay. That, that always makes you feel a little better for sure. You know, it just, I, I find and and me, I mean, I searched and I searched and I hung ribbon and I gritted and it was out in sage country and, and there was two pockets of that really thick, nasty, like buck brush stuff. And I was hanging ribbon and I gritted, I gritted and I didn't find anything. So I knew I looked hard, but then I found a shed and I was just like, Oh, I, even though it was a year ago or whatever, I still feel a lot better. Cause obviously he made it, you know? No, it does feel a lot better. I'm sure again, every, you know, lots of people have hit one and confident that it's dead and you just don't find it. And as odd as it is, and as big as elk are, man, if they fall down, unless you get a tine sticking up, sometimes they'll fall behind a log in dark timber or up under a tree, you know, or roll under the boughs of a low hanging evergreen or you know there could be a little depression in some sagebrush and you really about have to walk right on top of them to find it it's crazy yeah um and that bull in montana last year like i said i was i was hunting solo and this bull came out i ranged some trees and he was about eight yards farther out than i thought he was when he walked past the tree and so left and right was perfect up and down not so much and uh you know, I've always said if, if, you, if I know the yardage, I'm, I'm really confident in my shooting. But it just, you know, you wouldn't think five or eight yards with a rifle wouldn't make a hill of beans, but with a bow <laughs> going from I don't remember the distance, but I thought it was, you know, 35, and it turned out to be like 
turned out to be like 43 or 44 when I actually went back and stood in his footprints, shot back at me where I shot from. That made all the difference in the world. Right. And and I think that's something kind of interesting to do, actually, you know, obviously if your target is big enough, um, but, you know, have your sight on 35 or 30 yards and go stand at 40 and hold dead center in the middle and see what your drop looks like. Um, it might, it might honestly surprise you, or you might be like, man, that's not near as bad as I expected, but either way, it's something pretty right. handy to know. Sure. Absolutely. So yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. So with, with, with the elk hunting that you do, um, let's say that you show up to an area that you've never hunted before. Um, walk us through kind of your process, whether it, you know, whether there's e-scouting before you get there or there's phone calls or whatever, what type of research goes into looking at that area and figuring out kind of where you want to focus your attention and then going in there and giving it your all. Um, yeah, it's, I guess a lot of it varies. Um, let's just say in the last four years, I've, when I was still in Colorado, I hunted a spot in Montana. Actually, I've hunted Montana a few times. And the first time up, a lot of times, the first time I was able to put boots on the ground was on the hunt. Um, and so right. one of the advantages to me of, of, uh, of course, September, if they're talking at all, is that will help direct you on where the elk are <laughs> and, uh, where you need to focus your efforts, mm-hmm. but it's a lot of, you know, Onyx, um, Google earth, looking at the area, looking at North facing slopes and open areas, water sources, depending on time of year. Um, I was able to three years ago, uh, actually come up in August and do some scouting with a couple of other guys, but you know, you're kind of there in the middle part of the day, not so much morning and evening looking at maybe their travel patterns and whatnot. It's just getting, Boots on the ground is always better than just e-scouting. You just can visualize and, and a big landscape picture rather than just from up, up overhead, you know, trying to figure things out. Um, and then in Utah, for instance, I did some e-scouting and talked to a couple of people and and uh, some guys that I got to know and had never met until we showed up had offered to help me. It was a tag I won at the Western Hunting and Conservation Expo. Uh, you know, they kind of just, the first afternoon we showed up, we being Chris and me, he filmed the thing. Um, we just got in a ranger or side-by-side. He took me all over that combined with the aerial maps and Onyx that I'd used. Scouting just that sort of boots on the ground, uh, even though we were in a side-by-side, really gives you a sense of what the area looks like and gives you a way, place to start. And then really once you start... Um, it's kind of going and I'll do a lot of, of blind calling if they're not calling on their own. If they are, I just shut up and try to try to get in close and uh, see what happens. And as you well know, in New Mexico, we'd never been there. Dave the camps helped us and was able to direct us. But I mean, that first day we put on what, seven miles walking, didn't cut a track, didn't hear an elk, <laughs> didn't see an elk. And so sometimes Saw a snake. all of that Scouting and even being directed doesn't do you a bit of good. You've got to hear your first one to, to make a game plan. Right. Yeah, that, that that's so true. It and, and that saying, you know, the elk are where the elk are is, I don't know, it's something that, that obviously holds a lot of truth to it. 
because there there's there's times when you could uh do all the research and listen to uh you know the one that pops to mind is elk 101 um i think they they give out great information uh but just because they might be right let's even give them a high number 90% of the time uh there still could be that 10% where you you did what they told you and you go in there and the elk are where the elk are and they aren't where you, where you thought they would be. And, yeah. you know, and that's, that's one thing I've noticed that that's really hard about hunting in an, in a unit or state or whatever, where there's, where there's a lot of other pressure is when they aren't talking, man, that, that, uh, that dark timber style hunting and still hunting like Chris does. And, and I know you've done some as well, like that, that's that's a whole different ball game. <laughs> it's just like <laughs> trying to hunt silent elk with a bow is about as tough as it gets when you can't blast and see them. You know, hopefully, maybe watching what patch of trees they go in to go bed and whatnot. You're absolutely right. And to that point, I mean, you can hunt someplace you've been in years past. Chris and I have hunted Montana a couple of times. The last time uh, we hunted up in the breaks. Uh, must be four years ago now, hard to believe, which was, I think, our third or fourth time together going up there. We figured we'd go back to the same place that we'd been. We had good success. We'd killed a few bulls. Um, even though we didn't kill bulls the last time we'd been up there together, we were in elk the whole time. So we went up there, and in that period of a couple of years between us drawing tags, the elk had moved almost entirely onto a private piece of ground. And we're not on the public surrounding or the block management uh, that the public could hunt. And, you know, you can't plan on that. And we didn't do as, I guess, in theory, as much scouting as maybe we should have. We were just relying on, for us, the most recent information, which was a couple of years old. And, man, can it change in a couple of years? It just had to do with this guy. And, and he actually sold his property now. And he, he was baiting. And he'd been written up a whole bunch of times from the parks. Um, you know, the, the parks and wildlife here, but over the time, they just, he was holding nearly all the elk in the area and they were unhuntable. You just didn't have access to it. So sometimes you can get surprised that way as well. Yeah. I, I actually remember, remember seeing that episode and there were a ton of elk <laughs> over there and <laughs> it, it was crazy. I was just, you know, it, it people are always looking for a really cool backdrop when they do an interview or take pictures or whatever. Um, your guys' backdrop of like 500 elk was pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. It would have been cooler if we could have crossed the fence and actually hunted them. <laughs> I know. Yeah. I could imagine that, that you guys were definitely chomping at the bit to, <laughs> but you know, that like you say, like we said, said before, he's, for whatever reason, the elk are where the elk are and, and they're not, you know, there's their instinct is to survive. And when there, there's a big chunk, obviously with no pressure. I mean, that seems like a no brainer, I guess. <laughs> yep. Absolutely. So, so, uh, you had, uh, a, a, a pretty awesome hunt last year in New Mexico and, I know like that, that was uh, obviously I was the one there. I filmed it and 
I think if I try to make it sound like I don't know what happened, it would probably make this sound really weird. So, um, <laughs> like, <laughs> I don't know how I would do that very well. But um, what I was going to get at is, you know, going there, it was, I found it kind of, kind of different, but kind of the same. Cause like I had told you, you know, that, that country looks a lot like bags, Wyoming, where I grew up and, mm-hmm. and, but the difference is, is bags doesn't have elk that looked at that are like that big <laughs> a and, and B the, there's so many more elk, you know? So when, you know, when we first got there and we made that seven or eight mile loop, uh, what kind of stuff were you thinking? Cause you know, I was kind of thinking, I, I was just like, man, you know, they said we would see basically nothing, but I was at least hoping for a, an old track, you know, <laughs> like, well, so what, what kind of stuff were you thinking when we made that big loop? And then, um, well, I guess you already hadn't broke your wife's trucks or, or your truck, I guess, but so that was, that right, was a breath right. of fresh air. But the next day we made that huge loop and I mean, we didn't even cut a track. So were you kind of like, Hmm, what have I got myself into? Or were you just like, well, this is, this is kind of what I expected. Well, even though David was great about telling us what we could expect, which was that you, you kind of don't want to believe it because I mean, you've right. driven a long way, you spent some money on the tag, you got some money invested in a videographer and hoping to, you know, get an episode and tell a story, which sometimes that is the story, you know, that the rumors are true and there aren't many elk and we hunted for a week and didn't have an opportunity. If it would have been three or four days that way, Zach, I would have to say my attitude might have been far different. But but <laughs> yes, I was a little surprised. Uh, I mean, shoot, we found that relatively fresh rub late in the morning and I felt like we just found a unicorn. <laughs> we didn't. We didn't see anything, you know, or hear anything, whatever, for four hours prior to that. And, uh, yeah, not seeing tracks, not hearing anything was was surprising. And, boy, did it turn around quickly that afternoon with one bugle. Oh, man, did it ever. Yeah, I, I agree. I think <clears throat> I think if uh, <laughs> I think if we, it would have been four days without seeing an elk and walking that much, I mean, and it, it was, it's different terrain there. So yeah, while it, while it was nine miles or whatever it was, it's not like nine miles in the mountains of Wyoming or Colorado, obviously. Um, right. But, it, but still, like, I think after four days of that, we might've been hunting with the bottle of Pendleton with us. Like <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, or we'd have, we'd have been like the elk hunters we all sort of, I hate they make fun of, that come from the eastern Midwest and, and, you know, really don't hunt, but they're playing cards and staying up late and drinking and doing that type of thing. It might have turned into more of a camping adventure than a hunting adventure. <laughs> Four or five days of that, because pretty soon you're like, I mean, that is one of the hardest things, and, and we've all done it. You know, you need to just stay in it up until the time you're packing up to leave, because it can happen so dang fast, but it does, your morale gets really low. You get frustrated, you get disappointed. Um, it's hard to keep, keep sharp and keep doing what you're supposed to be doing. And and I think that really holds true when it's, uh, either low elk density or elk that aren't talking, you know, cause Mm -hmm. when they're, when they're talking, even if you're not shooting an elk, when they're talking, you kind of are like, okay, cool. I, I know they're elk here. It's just a matter of time. 
even when you're seeing elk, you're like, oh, look, there's elk. But when they're not talking and or and or you're not seeing them, boy, you're not kidding. It's it is definitely a lot more challenging to stay, <clears throat> stay on the positive side. Now, granted, that was only one day of it. Um, and like you say, boy, did it turn around quick. Um, but I guess that I mean that. Yeah, that was that was crazy. And that when when is that episode coming out? Pretty much all edited. Uh, I can tell you, it's. I mean, it's it's here pretty September. soon, isn't it? Yeah, it's running in September. So cool. our run schedule is uh, we we air four episodes and re air them, and then we start with another five to eight. And uh, instead of running all thirteen and then all re airs, it keeps our content fresh throughout the full two quarters. So it's going to be in week. 10, which I don't have in front of me what week that is. So we'll go one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four. Then we have episode five and then episode six is, uh, is that hunt and episode actually five or six and seven, because we had such a good experience and, uh, we were able to make two episodes out of it as you know. Yeah. Pretty cool. Well, that's awesome. Well, everybody is going to have to go and check out that episode um, because it's it, it it's a good one. You know, it's it's a slightly above average bull um, and two slightly above average bulls and two slightly uh-huh. above average reactions and some tarantulas, a lot of hummingbirds. And it's just it's a good one. It's a it's a really good maybe, episode. Maybe one rattlesnake. Yes, yes. Don't forget the rattlesnake. <laughs> Everybody that knows Willie knows he loves snakes, except for the venomous ones you almost step on. But yes, you're correct. Yeah. <clears throat> yep. Yep. It's they're just so much worse when you don't know they're there. <laughs> oh God! I think my heart still skips a beat when I think about it or if I watch it. <laughs> Oh man, I I didn't know you could jump so high. <laughs> yeah, white men can jump on occasion, even with a, with a you know twenty five pound, thirty pound backpack on. <laughs> oh geez. Well, I Willie, I really appreciate you <clears throat> taking the time out of your afternoon to hop on the podcast. Uh, if you would uh, share with everybody listening how they can view all your content and stay up with you on social media and everything like that. Uh, that would be awesome. Sure. Appreciate that. Uh, season nine, if you're hunting during now, so the new content actually airs the primary time slot is Monday nights on the sportsman channel, nine o'clock PM Eastern standard time. There are three other fringe airings, uh, throughout the week, but you know, any kind of uh, dish direct or cable, you can just search pure hunting and it'll, it'll tell you the time slots for seasons one through eight. Uh, you can go to YouTube. You can actually go to purehunting.com and then click on episodes and it'll bring that up. Um, so all previous year's episodes are there as well as additional content and uh, social media is pure hunting underscore official on Instagram and pure hunting on Facebook. I think Instagram is where I spend most of my time and keep it uh, more current and a lot more activity. Gotcha. Well, awesome. Well, thanks a bunch for, uh, 
for your time. I, I enjoyed the, I enjoyed our conversation and I think people will be able to take some, take some good information out from, you know, kind of talking about the way we like the knives and why we like the knives. Um, a little bit about your background and some of your trials and errors, and then some of the, some of the elk hunting stuff that we discussed. So I think there's definitely something for somebody to take away, even, even if it's really, really small, I think somebody will take away something. So <laughs> I appreciate your time. Well, well, I appreciate it, Zach. And I, I like to pride myself on responding to any messages that comes across, whether it's social media or email or through the website. So if anybody has any questions, comments, feedback, whatever, I love to get it. So they don't need to hesitate to reach out. I will respond. Awesome. I better go shoot my bow, Zach, so I can make it happen again when we're together. <laughs> Sounds good. Sounds good. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Zach. Appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks a bunch, Willie. Thank you for listening in. Be sure to like, comment, subscribe, and share. We hope to have you tuning in for the next episode.